Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our opening song is Ode to the Big Sea by the Cinematic Orchestra off the 1999 album Motion, where songs are built with wave upon wave of repeated loops and instrumental phrases. Our use of Cinematic Orchestra throughout also repeats. Our show today is Shooting the Gulf, Alan Sekula in the American Grain. In his most famous essay, Self-Reliance, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote perhaps his most famous sentences. Life only avails, not the having lived. Power ceases in the instant of repose. It resides in the moment of transition from a past to a new state, in the shooting of the gulf, in the darting to an aim. Alan Sekula was an American photographer, writer, filmmaker, theorist, and critic whose work frequently focused on what he called the imaginary and material geographies of the advanced capitalist world. Sekula started and maintained a photographic and literary praxis for 40 years. What you see in his 2012 essay film, made in collaboration with film theorist Noel Birch, The Forgotten Space, is predicated on the same principles laid out in his aerospace folktales, first exhibited at the University of California at San Diego in 1973. Perhaps the key difference being that aerospace folktales is described as a disassembled movie, while the forgotten space is, of course, assembled. I'm sure you can already detect the analogies that connect the themes and subjects of Sekula's work in the word assemble as we apply it to industry and labor and the material things that profit some small number of the humans on this planet. We might think of Sekula's work as a kind of investigation of Melville's monkey rope, what binds us to each other across the gap. A mate is attached to the harpooner as the latter, now become butcher, cuts into whale flesh, stripping away its life for the commodity that lighted the night of the 19th century. What binds us in the service of profit-seeking entities? Melville is a kind of guiding intelligence throughout Sekula's work as he examines laboring humans on ships and in ports and the consequences of that labor to the humans that perform it, as well as the geographies maimed and destroyed by its economic dictates. Alan Sekula was born in 1951 in Erie, Pennsylvania, though spending most of his life in and around Los Angeles. He died in August 2013 of gastric esophageal cancer at the age of 62. Sekula's vision and his voice is impressively global and yet always local. The sites he explores are always uniquely of their place but they are always also contending with the same economic tyrannies. But Sekula was more than a critic of capitalism. He was an influential theorist of documentary photography and photojournalism. And for today's show, we'll discover the intersection of these interests. His 2003 book, Titanic's Wake, is a great introduction to both of these modes. If you want to dive deeper, find his photography against the grain and brace yourself. Through an investigation of the uses of photography by capitalist state institutions like museums and the CIA and even the public school system, 
Sikula exposes fully the manipulations of class and economic ideology. Today, though, we'll need to tighten our focus with the help of guest Stephanie Schwartz, a lecturer in American documentary film and photography and American modernism at University College London. She recently published a special In Focus project for the Tate Modern, part of an institution that houses the United Kingdom's National Collection of British Art and International Modern and Contemporary Art. Irony is always abound in capitalism. Tate is named after Henry Tate, a sugar magnate whose refineries were located along the Thames River in Liverpool and Silvertown. Schwartz focuses on Sikula's waiting for tear gas, his anti-journalistic manifesto consisting of a looped slide sequence of 81 photographs shot among the crowds during the anti-World Trade Organization protests in Seattle, Washington in 1999. The work is a radical form of portraiture and street photography, a critique of the journalistic photo essay, and a profound anti-capitalist statement. Shooting the Gulf, Alan Sikula in the American Grey. In an obituary essay I read, uh, basically also points out or that the book Photography Against the Grain it says, uh, significantly altered the way in which the documentary function of photography was conceptualized. Do you mind uh, uh, helping me understand that a little bit? What's that alteration? How was it before that point? And what did, what did Sekula bring to it? So I'm probably referring to an essay that he wrote in, well, that was published in that book, but appeared in, in several different publications, kind of earlier versions of it in 78, 79. Um, called Dismantling Modernism. Dismantling Modernism, 1978. I am arguing then for an art that documents monopoly capitalism's inability to deliver the conditions of a fully human life, for an art that recalls Benjamin's remark in the Theses on the Philosophy of History that there is no document of civilization that is not at the same time a document of barbarism against violence directed at the human body, at the environment, at working people's ability to control their own lives. We need to counterpose an active resistance, simultaneously political and symbolic, to monopoly capitalism's increasing power and arrogance, a resistance aimed ultimately at socialist transformation. A didactic and critical representation is a necessary but insufficient condition for the transformation of society, a larger, encompassing praxis is necessary. That is a kind of foundational text and one of the things that I think is that I always kind of think about that text is um, that again goes back to some of the things that you, you were saying before is that it's definitely a text that was written of its moment. It has the the tone and tenor of a manifesto and the way in which he's writing that comes from a kind of sense of urgency um, in the 70s that he, you know, that comes from the photographs and that he wants to bring back to kind of histories of photography. But I think the key term also that he's addressing there is this idea of dismantling modernism. And so it is about this idea of writing history and rewriting history. And we have a certain conception of what modernism is um, and where documentary might fit into that and how do we kind of dismantle that and rewrite it. And one of the things that he's really responding to, and this 
cuts across photography against the grain is the way in which photography has been was being institutionalized specifically in museums like the Museum of Modern Art, um, but also academically as a kind of art object. Hmm. And one of the really important aspects of his work and when he decided you know to commit to photography as well was to think of photography as something that operates you know in culture in ways that art fine art objects don't um and so he was thinking about the way in which it was being institutionalized and specifically with documentary was being institutionalized and one of the kind of dialogues he's having in that text is with curators at the museum of modern art specifically one famous curator John Sarkowski, who in 1967 um, put on a very famous show that many people responded to um, called New Documentary, in which he um, showcased the work of three photographers, Diane Arbus, Gary Winogrand, and Lee Friedlander, setting up this idea of a, a kind of refusal or kind of response to the you know 1930s documentary um, and thinking about documentary now as a kind of personal poetics as opposed to a political endeavor. Mm. And he was responding to that way in which documentary was being institutionalized, as well as the way in which someone like Edward Steichen, who was the previous curator at, or, uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, had put on a series of exhibitions as well around documentary photography, one of them that's important that doesn't you know get discussed that much is a show that he did in 1962 called the bitter years in which he rehung or he basically took the fsi archive the farm security administration archive and used it in this way to script this narrative about um you know um, how now is this time that we've you know triumphed after the you know the depression it's over and we're entering this new it was this kind of you know triumphal history of american struggle and success um and so Sekula was, you know, not just responding to documentary photography, but really responding to the way in which people were being trained to think about the agenda of documentary photography and really pushing back against that. Although it often gets written or, or, or discussed as very, being very critical of 30s documentary photography. Um, but I would argue that that's not really what he's doing, what he's being critical is the way in which that has been historicized. An important thing to point out or to continue to try to understand um, is how historicization works, right? How it is that yeah. we are trained, uh, how it is that we come to have understanding of the past. And this is, you know, a sort of a, a front lines fight in some ways with Sekula, where he's constantly trying to, to suggest that these these things have to always be struggled against the the actual framing of the story that you say i think you know he's he recognizes his stories are fictions too or fish stories exactly yeah yes. but he's critical of it you know he's aware of it he's critical of it he suggests you critique it as well uh and constantly calling allusions to other uh fish stories uh artists authors to keep the mind in that sort of um, fecund space of analogy and um, sort of push-pull antagonism of what the world is is really doing. Yeah, exactly. That's exa I mean, I think that's you know one of the great offerings of his work is that lesson of kind of thinking about how histories are written and how they need to be rewritten constantly. Um, and so, forgotten spaces. That is again to go back to that one example of the kind of 
myth we have about the way in which people labor now, this kind of immaterialization of labor that, or this kind of freeing up of labor that you get to work, you know, wherever you want, you can invent your jobs, all of these kinds of very positive narratives about the way in which people work, which, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, they're not true, but he's not just interested in that. He's really interested in pointing how do those stories get told? How do they get written so that they appear to be true? And so, yeah, one of the things I always think is important to stress is that, you know, it's not about just necessarily debunking certain myths, but looking at the the political valences of the myths in place Mm -hmm. and how they how they were used and how they are continued to be used what histories they block from coming to bear you know coming to be and what histories they produce and mm-hmm. really working in those spaces between those different kinds of stories it's time for a break our song is all things from the cinematic orchestra more on alan sikula's art and activism when interchange returns Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show just barely breaks the surface of the fathoms deep work of photographer, essayist, and activist, Alan Sikula. Our guest is Stephanie Schwartz, whose recent In Focus project for the Tate looks at Alan Sikula's slide installation, Waiting for Tear Gas. The particular focus, waiting for tear gas, as uh, you can give us a little bit of uh, the history of that that work and how how it comes out of that kind of resurgence, uh, a moment in time that that begins to be, uh, I guess, move into the public imaginary protest. Really, uh, past uh, the civil rights era, kind of disappeared, or at least in 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 my understanding of it, uh, protest. Um, went dark in many ways and perhaps the Seattle protests against the WTO became, you know, protests became more public again, if, if I'm reading that correctly. Yeah. There's several different kind of ways to get into that, this work. And, you know, obviously again, it's kind of which history you want to write. I mean, he sets that up for you as well. I think in mm-hmm. that work, where are you going to place this? What is the, what is this work going to read to you? What is it going to do for you? Because he's jockeying here as I talk about with the media's representation of both protest and the protester. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, quickly you set up the the actual, uh, I guess, subject of Waiting for Tear Gas. Right. So Waiting for Tear Gas is a work that he did in which he was basically on the streets in Seattle during the anti-WTO World Trade Center protest that took place on 
over several days at the end of November, the beginning of December 1999. Um, and so one of the big aspects of this work that is that he was in the street taking the photographs, walking with the protesters. Um, so he was in the street working taking these photographs and this project actually comes out of or I wouldn't necessarily comes out of but it's in in, a, in ways it is a continuation of the work that he was doing for fish story I mean all of his that that work which is also a kind of precursor in a way to forgotten space around shipping and this, this work at sea um, in relation to who he met during his travels and obviously the port city and Seattle was part of that that history um, and so he spends um, interestingly, he's, you know, he doesn't try to get the whole protest. He's not interesting. He does, he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't, he won't kind of accept this myth that there is, that you could grasp the whole thing. You could have a totality. If you stood there for the full days of the protest, you would have coverage of it. He spends one day basically, as he says in a text that he writes to go along with it from dawn to dusk, taking this series of photographs. He perfectly, purposely does it in a way that is what he calls anti-photojournalism, which is something that I take up specifically in one of the essays, what that term means, um, or what I think that term means, um, which he identifies as, you know, none of the protocols that journalists use. From waiting for tear gas, white globe to black. The working idea was to move with the flow of protest from dawn to 3 a.m., if need be taking in the lulls, the waiting, and the margins of events. The rule of thumb for this sort of anti-photojournalism, no flash, no telephoto zoom lens, no gas mask, no autofocus, no press pass, and no pressure to grab at all costs the one defining image of dramatic violence. Later, working at the light table and reading the increasingly stereotypical descriptions of the new face of protest, I realized all the more that a simple descriptive physiognomy was warranted the alliance on the streets was indeed stranger, more varied, and inspired than could be conveyed by cute alliterative play with teamsters and turtles. Something very simple is missed by descriptions of this as a movement founded in cyberspace. The human body asserts itself in the city streets against the abstraction of global capital. There was a strong feminist dimension to this testimony, and there was also a dimension grounded in the experience of work. It was the men and women who work on the docks, after all, who shut down the flow of metal boxes from Asia, relying on individual knowledge that there is always another body on the other side of the sea doing the same work, that all this global trade is more than a matter of a mouse click. So a very specific understanding of street photography, of being close up, of being kind of in the mix. And then the work itself is a slide sequence of a series of um, 80, I think it's 80 or 81 photographs that he, that is shown in a slide sequence under very specific um, rules at certain distance with certain, with a darkened room in it, and includes a short text that he writes about his decision to make these photographs and what he was trying to do. Um, and in some way, some of the photographs are, you know, um, they're just that pictures of people in the street protesting. Um, although it has this very specific frame of two globes that he has. So the subtitle of the work is, um, 
white globed black and the work begins with a photograph of a white globe and then closes with a photograph of a black globe. Um, although it's a loop. So, you know, whether you want to say opens and closes is another kind mm -hmm. of question. It keeps, you know, you keep, it keeps turning in a certain kind of way. It's interesting that the globe, uh, I, I think you point out too, that the, the picture, the original, or again, the, the white globe picture includes the black globe. Yeah. Uh, and the black globe picture has just the black globe. Like it's, it's a, a tighter shot on the, on the black globe and excludes the white globe. These are shots that are taken in a library space. So it's mm -hmm. again going inside versus, you know, the whole work is about being in the street and being outside. Um, but going into a kind of quiet space. Um, but he also shoots them so that you, you're, it's, you see those kind of library lights just mm -hmm. kind of flooding down yeah it's a it's a beauty it is a beautiful frame right it's the it's a simple one but it using a picture it allows you to to sort of think about it in a different way perhaps but yeah but i think you made it more, much more clear to me with the idea of it being in a library space right the idea that you're going to now take these photographs that were taken in the experience right in the moment of this uh, this protest that is now historicized as you say and right. you to historicize anything it has to be the past right so you have to be able to look at it and then you have to be able to tell a story at it and here are two ways to narrate the the past of the of the history you know of, of the globe of the world and globes themselves are historicizing uh, elements too right yeah. um, maps are uh, contentious all the time right so right uh, and so it, I, you could say that there's no kind of complete finished work because the map then takes you to the sea trade to fish stories to the the ways in which you know borders are carved up and created you know so he's it's he's constantly each work kind of moves on to the next one and refers back to ones before. Mm -hmm. and Was it first an installation then? Yeah, yeah so it's, okay. it's, in, it's installed. There are five versions of it um, collected or, you know, owned by different European, mostly European museums. Um, mm -hmm. So Tate has one and that's, that's how this project started. Mm -hmm. um, and then he has on, I think one or two other, well, it was published um Part of the photographs were published in a text around Seattle, Five Days That Shook the World, that mm -hmm. was published in 2000. But it's not the exact same photographs in Waiting for Teargrass, and not it's only 32 of them. And then occasionally in other works, he has included them. And mm -hmm. that's interesting as well, because he's, for him... And, you know, one of the important things about his work is that it's not just about sequence, but it's, a you know, about context. It's about what you put next to something and not just like what photograph you put next to another photograph, but what work you're putting in dialogue with other works mm -hmm. that create new kinds of histories. Mm -hmm. So he's very careful and conscious of thinking about, you know, where Waiting for Teargrass could go. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's um, it's a pretty impressive. Like again, just the opportunity to talk to you about it and read your piece and to, and to look at it as well and and to see it in context of Titanic's wake. Also, um, you know, as you say, keeps opening up these possibilities of understanding. Uh, and it's one of those um, one of those important things again that I think we, in particular, maybe with photography, but I, I assume this is generally maybe a human brain issue or a training issue, perhaps. But the the wish to sort of settle on meaning, right, is yeah. kind of stuck with us in many ways, and it's it's part of what 
what he's fighting against. And, and I think it's within this context that you, I guess you might sort of, uh, uh, examine that, that sort of push against the iconic image. Um, yeah. and I, and I do want you to talk more about anti-photo journalism as well. Uh, again, I, I do like that he's sort of critiquing the ways that, that we get these ideas about what photojournalism should be, what journalism should be, you know, all these kinds of things, and then trying to understand what its antithesis might be. We'd have to, we have to have a definition to have an anti-definition. So, I mean, the iconic in many ways goes back to what I was just saying about thinking about sequence and essays. He calls his work photo essays, or he sometimes calls them disassembled movies, or at least aerospace folktales, the term that he used to describe that was a disassembled movie. And so he's thinking about, you know, pieces and parts and the ways in which images go together. And in that way, it is a resistance or a kind of um, refusal to think about you know, the shot, the kind of totalizing shot that encapsulates everything. Um, but also I think more than, and that is part of what he's doing in Waiting for Tear Gas, because this idea that you can, you know, encapsulate the protester as a kind of stereotype of, you know, that there is a stereotype of the protester that circulates in the press. He's obviously, you know, he's pushing a back against this in multiple ways with the types of photographs he takes, but also with the number of them that you need, you know, that you have many of them, they go in a loop and you're going to continue to kind of interact with these different faces. But he's also pushing back again, and this comes up in his discussion in the introduction to Photography Against the Grain, about these kind of assumptions about we have, we have about what the medium of photography is. Perhaps it is significant that I began, innocently enough, by looking at published photographs and not at museologically preserved specimens. Thus I was more quickly impressed than might otherwise have been the case by the extreme degree to which photographic meaning was dependent on context. Here was a visual art for which, unlike cinema, discontinuity and incompletion seemed fundamental, despite attempts to construct reassuring notions of organic unity and coherence at the level of the single image. Thus the problem of reception, the problem of what Walter Benjamin termed the afterlife of the work of art, becomes especially important for photography, and thus also the category of the author is especially fragile and subject to editorial revision. We have this assumption that, you know, it is a kind of, there is a kind of singular image or that it's a stop in time but actually you know the medium you know does everything to kind of drive against that but we want to make it this kind of iconic image or this kind of singular image and mm -hmm. so much work is is pushing back against um or not necessarily pushing back but asking us to rethink those assumptions we have about photography and that again goes back to this question of the way in which photography is institutionalized within, you know, as a work of art, as a framed object that goes on the wall. And he's, you know, really interested in re rethink, you know, rethinking the way in which we've thought about photography in that way. It's yes. not anti-aesthetic or anti-art, but it is, do, how, do, how does the, does photography, you know, should photography be historicized in the same ways that we historicize other, other objects and images, or, you know, are we putting that on the media? Let's take another break with the Cinematic Orchestra's Every Day. Stay with us on Interchange for Shooting the Gulf, Alan Sikula in the American Grain.
Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. The critical investigation of photography and its uses and misuses is our topic today. Stephanie Schwartz of University College London joined us via Skype to talk about the work of the late Alan Sekula. The interesting thing in that, uh, in one of those pieces in the in focus um, for the Tate, you you point out in particular how iconic images replace uh, sort of other narrative photo essays, photo narratives about things. Right? I think one in particular was a, a Vietnam um, photo series of of you know uh, what it, what the war was, what was happening in the war, and it sort of becomes singular in one iconic photo of a troop. Um, yeah. The same thing with the uh, the Vietnam War. We sort of um, you know bring that to the. I think there are a couple photos photographs you talk about. The one where the a general. Um, uh, shoots uh, shoots uh, someone he's interrogating. I think I forget the names. Uh, um, and then the, uh, the the very famous naked little girl photograph. Um, and these things actually re- replace our thinking of the yeah. events. You know that photography can help us think about events if we're not sort of narrowed to this one image. It seems to me that I, that iconography, the iconic, serves. The neoliberal agenda as well, right? It serves history being frozen and yeah. and stop being thought about. Right. So that you could write the story and you know the end and there is an end or, you know, and you mm-hmm. can kind of narrate that. I mean, so that kind of feeds into this question about what anti-photojournalism is and how he, how he frames it. Because mm-hmm. I feel like one of the things that I was trying to do with specifically that essay in the, in the piece, um, was really to kind of think seriously about what he meant by that term and not just have a kind of, well, it's anti-photo, you know, what it is. It's anti-photojournalism. It's a critique of mass media. It's a critique of the way in which photojournalism or 
what we could, you know, larger, not just photography, but other, the media in general has framed specifically something like protests so that you get, you know, to use the stereotypical terms like the hooligan, the kind of hooded figure, the, you know, black hood with face masks, these kinds of things. So on the one hand, he is pushing back against that. But I think he's also, you know, or what I argue in that text is that he's asking us to kind of also think about our assumptions about what we think photojournalism is and kind of go back and think about the history of photojournalism such that we don't close photojournalism down because actually in its early moments or in its at its height and when it was emerging in the 20s and 30s at least in you know Europe and the United States it was you know seen as a had an amazing political potential for information communication news radical politics and so what he's doing in that work is not just kind of offering a critique of photojournalism but he's again asking us to to think historically and remind ourselves of the way in which the narrative about photojournalism has been written and such that we want to kind of push back against it, you know, one of the things he's kind of critiquing to again to go back to your the, the neoliberal point is, you know, these kinds of new media outlets with which kind of privilege immediacy and privilege kind of being there. But for him, he's also, you know, very careful or very it's important to remind us that those are kind of mythologies as well that create this idea of like the individual voice, the witness. Um, and you know he's uh, he's someone who's more interested in the collective and collective practice. Mm -hmm. um, and you do so stress the the again I I hate to do it but I, I keep wanting to stress the waiting part and stress yeah. the reflection you know that yeah. that comes from viewing anyone's work right so you know the the myth of. Uh, of uh, as you say immediacy um, the the myth of being able to understand the event in the particular right or to even understand it in the broader sense right uh, these both confound each other one of the things that um, that I think was fascinating about that as well is that you, you, know, you point to the images that become frozen and represent things, right? So the the the, the Seattle uh, protests over the WTO become represented by the black block because that's the picture right. that gets shown. That's the story that gets told. Uh, breaking a window is an issue. You know, property is being damaged, and these are dangerous. Again, as you say, hooligans. You know, and and Sekula's work shows the variety of protests, right? The variety of people, the variety of of interests that are involved in it, the ways in which people are working together, and they're not singular. And they're not like one anarchist group out to destroy the world, um, which is how media tends to present it. It, it struck me uh, even more when I think about, you know, remembering how the media uh, gave it a tagline too, right? The battle in yeah. Seattle, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And but it, it's it, it's like the uh, Ali Frazier fight in 75 was called the Thrilla in Manila. You know, right. and it's got the same ring to it, right? It's like, it seems to me an intentional echo where you just, it's just an event and we put it in the history pages or we can put it on a, a baseball card later, you know, some kind of thing in which you just, oh, the battle in Seattle, yeah. Yeah, but also sealing that up in a certain kind of way, this is what it is. Right. And so, yeah, as you, as you say, I mean, one of the, one of the, you know, part of what he's doing in that work is giving you the multiple, one of the most important things that historians and critics have written about that protest is one of the most interesting things about it or one of the most important things about it that be, that made it kind of singular even though it was part of a larger series of protests that you know around the WTO or against the WTO was that it was became incredibly evident how many different types of 
protesters or activists there was, and there wasn't a sense that it was just, you know, labor or just um, the environment, that the uh, one of his agendas was to kind of bring to bring out those kind of quote unquote faces of protest in a certain kind of way so that as one even though the because they become photographed and they are singular photographs they one of the things that I was thinking about was that they become kind of stereotypes so you still have the kind of hippie and the hooligan if those are the words that I use in quotations to kind of but that as one slips into the next you realize that one kind of fades into the other and it's about that kind of movement between them and that it's not about this you know the stasis of that image the traffic in photographs 1981 how can we work towards an active, critical understanding of the prevailing conventions of representation, particularly those surrounding photography? The discourse that surrounds photography speaks paradoxically of discipline and freedom, of rigorous truths and unleashed pleasures. Here then, at least by virtue of a need to contain the tensions inherent in this paradox, is the site of a certain shell game, a certain dance, even a certain politics. In effect, we are invited to dance between photographic truths and photographic pleasures with very little awareness of the floorboards and muscles that make this seemingly effortless movement possible. In a way, the slide sequence was part of that, but also as you're suggesting, that kind of, you know, doing away with or pushing back against that conceit that you know what's going to happen mm -hmm. like this has a narrative story and you know what's going to end there's a battle and there's like a success or failure whereas he gives you a loop and he times it and you have to kind of wait for the next slide to drop but the next slide doesn't nece necessarily mm -hmm. give you any conclusions or finality it just goes to the next one and then you start over again yeah yeah it opens up possibilities that's that's the that's to me the the fascinating thing about it it's firmly in uh, an american trend or in a trend uh, sort of the uh, american uh, it's uh, not against the grain of american thinking i should say <laughs> in some ways right so there is in emerson's famous uh, self-reliance there's you know life only avails not the having lived uh, power uh, exists in the, you know, the, the instant, you know, from one point to another, I'm mangling that quote, of course, but, um, that, that the power is in the gap. Um, yeah. and that's, that's Emerson's perspective in that particular essay as well, that, that, you know, there is more than the narrative, the myth, the story that's closed and Emerson famously shuffled all his essay pieces around constantly, right? So you, you're, he's the, uh, sort of philosopher of the sentence, it's the tension between the sentences that create the meaning in much of what Emerson says. And, and to me, Sikula is, is right, right in the line of, of that kind of thinking. And I guess go back to the, just what you were saying kind of reminded me of another point about the kind of anti-photojournalism in relation to the iconic and, and, and the kind of also anti-narrative, if you want to kind of think about it that way, mm -hmm. is that it's not, so on the one hand, it is obviously a a kind of response to the way in which the media has represented these protesters, but it's an incredible engagement with that as well and the kind of importance of media. So it's never just a kind of shutting shutting down or a kind of anti in that kind of way. He's really thinking about this kind of opening up as well. And one of the things, like the more and more time I spent with the work, it became obvious, or I, you began to see the, the kind of... Um, almost play with media where you would see like, you know, just 
like the lens of a foot of the camera kind of jutting into the frame. So it's a kind of self-reference on the fact that this is not, you know, this is still a representation. It's not as if you're, you know, going to get the whole story again, or, mm -hmm. you know, you know, if I do a kind of anti-media, I'm giving you some kind of truth in that kind of way, or the great, there's one at the end where he, or not at the, at, it's the, in the end of one of my pieces where he, you, he has that shot of kind of Ted Koppel kind of reporting from mm -hmm. waiting to share gas. So it's like the story is already being written in the media, kind of unfolding within his story in which he's kind of working through the way in which the media then tells its story. And so there's this constant, you know, kind of play on that, which is actually part of the history of documentary. We have this idea that, you know, there was this mo high moment of documentary in the 1930s in which photographs were, you know, make, you know, attempting to have some objective record of what was happening. But actually, if you begin again to look closer, which I think is what he's actually instructing us to do in some of his essays about documentary, back at the 1920s and 30s, what you see is that, you know, the kind of engagement with media and mediation with text and image it's all there we've again it's just been not it's not been historicized that way it's not we haven't you know we've been trained not to see it mm -hmm. um, so he you know he's kind of those kind of the kind of meta critique that he's doing at the same time as part of the is part of the practice mm -hmm. here's a final break once more accompanied by the cinematic orchestra. This is Man with the Movie Camera. When we return, what follows in the Titanic's wake? Stay with us for more Interchange. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. We'll close this glance at the work of Alan Sekula with a look at Two Kings of the World, Bill Gates and James Cameron. And we'll circle back to the beginning. November 30, 1999. Dear Bill Gates, I swam past your dream house the other day, but didn't stop to knock. 
Frankly, your underwater sensors had me worried. I would have liked to take a look at Winslow Homer's Lost on the Grand Banks. It's a great painting, but speaking as a friend and fellow citizen, at $30 million, you paid too much. Highest price ever paid for an American painting. So why are you so interested in a picture of two poor, lost dory fishermen, momentarily high on a swell, peering into a wall of fog? They're about as high as they're ever going to be, unless the sea gets uglier. They're going to die, you know, and it won't be a pretty death. And as for you, Bill, when you're on the net, are you lost or found? And the rest of us, lost or found, are we on it or in it? Your friend. I do want to talk about the Dear Bill Gates triptych um, and the letter uh, written as well. Uh, so if, uh, you know, at least just kind of describe it and give give a little bit to it uh, because it's, one, it's pretty funny. And two, it's it's not funny. <laughs> so, um, uh, so if you don't mind, let's talk about that. Dear Bill Gates is one of the works that's part of um, Titanic's Wake, which is a project that he did in... Well, it has a book project and an exhibition, 2001, 2003. Mm -hmm. So it included Waiting for Tear Gas, um, a work called The Titanic's Wake and Dear Bill Gates. And Dear Bill Gates, so it's a triptych of, it's a photograph um, and of him kind of swimming in front of Bill Gates' home, um, a, as well as a letter that he writes to Gates about his purchase of Winslow Homer's painting of two fishermen lost on the Grand Banks which sold for, you know, a record figure. $30 million, I think. Yeah, at that yeah. time. Mm -hmm. And so he puts these, the photograph of his home, Sekula himself kind of peering out of the water, and then a, a, a photograph of boats or fishermen along with this letter. Um, and so he's doing a lot of the things that he does in his work. There's always more than one photograph. There's text along with image. Um, and as well, this, is part of an essay that he wrote um, that is the sequel, one could say, to a very important essay that he um, wrote called The Traffic in Photographs, mm. which he rewrites in um, relation to the internet and thinking about questions of neoliberalism and circulation in that context. And so he has an extended kind of commentary on this work, Dear Bill Gates. But what's also interesting and why it's important to go to, that it goes along with the waiting for tear gas is that the letter is dated November 30th, 1999, mm -hmm. which is the day of the protest. And so again, he's kind of syncing all of these things kind of back together in a, in a certain one of way. Right. But so Bill Gates about, is in the center of, I mean, it's, Bill Gates is Seattle, right? So yeah, he's in the center of Seattle. He's, but then he's then also in the center of art photography, you know, art and photography, and, you know, one of the questions that he poses and a lot of his writing is kind of posing these questions rhetorically, but kind of driving an argument, you know, what does Bill Gates want with this Winslow Homer painting of two fishermen? And then you all of a sudden start to call up the stories of fish story and fishermen and labor and the sea and the, you know, of someone who's so far removed from those kinds of spaces. So what does it mean to kind of own a representation of that is some of, you know, what he's trying to get in. Mm -hmm. One of the things about Sekula that's all, you know, he has these figures that become these kind of, there's Bill Gates, there's Frank Gehry, and there's um, Edward Steichen, are these figures that he continuously returns to 
and mobilizes his critiques around the ways in which histories have been written, neoliberalism, um, through those figures. And so Bill Gates kind of functions in the, in that, in that context as well. Um, mm. For him, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, just the way you described it and the way you the way you described your your own analogizing reading of it, right, and the intentions and and uh, sort of uh, of the internal uh, allusions to his own work and then the other uh, work that he speaks to as well is it's it's uh, I, I used fecund before. I'm not sure there's a better word for it. It just keeps it just keeps you know burgeoning and blossoming into new ideas, right? Yeah, but I like the the humor point. Like I'm 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 glad you <laughs> Well, it's a hard. Like I don't. So I've 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 watched Forg- the Forgotten Space. I've I've uh, dipped in and out of multiple multiple texts, and uh, I you know his his writing is humorous frequently. Yeah. And you know I don't nec- I don't I guess I I haven't found humor in his photographs uh, that I've seen. You could say that this ain't China, which is another one of the early works. These photo essays. So there's mm. aerospace folktales and. Um, the untitled side sequence, but then there's the St. China, which is a kind of performance slash kind of theater around the working conditions in a kind of pizza restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's an early film called performance under working conditions, which is also quite funny. That's Mm -hmm. almost kind of a Chaplin ass kind of slapstick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two meetings for one place. Sneeze on this spaghetti. Sneeze on it. (laughs) That's for blinking. Okay, that's Lincoln's table. Take this Lincoln's table, man. Take it right now. Just take it. That's a snot deluxe special. Hey, Barry Wayne said when he was working and uh, where he was working. Yeah. Sean Hall Smith came in. Oh, yeah? He spit. No, he put booger. You know what John Shin? Logies. Swear to God? Yeah. You know what Shin did in the cafeteria when when me and Shin worked at UCSD? Yeah, that's even true. In the cafeteria. Yeah. Uh, the one of the regents was, you know, one of the UC regents was coming to dinner. Uh-huh. So me and Shin were working. Shin was going to be like the waiter for the luncheon. It was luncheon, right? You know. Did he have a wig? No. It, you could have long hair then. Or maybe he had short hair. I can't uh, remember. We used to wear like hair nets and shit. Mm-hmm. No, you could have long hair then. That's right. I can't remember. Where was it? At the cafeteria? Yeah, at Ravel. Okay. So Shin had about five tabs acid, man. Just He was going to drop in the dude's coffee, but he never got a chance. Who was the guy? Some big, I don't know, DeWitt Higgs or something. Who's that? He's the guy that's San Diego region. Man, imagine if we filled this food with mescaline or something. Well, we could do it. I don't like that. How about if we just, you know, came in and carved hammers and sickles in the table? This is Interchange. Our guest is Stephanie Schwartz, lecturer at University College London on American documentary and photography. And our topic is the work of photographer and essayist Alan Sikula. From Titanic's Wake The lugubrious arrogance of Titanic intrigues me. Is it a symptom of something larger? we peer morbidly into the vortex of industrialism's early nosedive into the abyss. The film absolves us of any obligation to remember the disasters that followed. Quick as a wink, cartoon-like, the angel of history is flattened between a wall of steel and a wall of ice. It's an easy, premature way to mourn a bloody century. Or maybe, more innocently, the movie is a bellwether of good-hearted American neoliberalism. When James Cameron accepted the first of his Academy Awards for the film, 
he thrust his Oscar statuette into the overheated air above the podium and bellowed out a line from the film, King of the World. Later, looking slightly abashed after receiving what seemed to be a scathing glance from his wife, he asked for a moment of silence for the long dead passengers and crew. The idea of Titanic's Wake is, is sort of the reality, the material reality of the filming, you know, is, yeah. is, more impo- is, is what Sekula does all across his work is to say, this is the thing that's the illusion, right? This is, and this is the illusion that gets historicized or, get, or, or becomes the historicizing act, uh, the historicizing element that you then think that this is the world, this is how the world happened. But within the creating of that narrative is a fact of material destruction, you know, <laughs> material uh, degradation, uh, the way the actual world works economically, uh, hierarchically, in class ways, you know, this, you have to actually know how it's composed. And the, and the story of, of building that tank to, to film the Titanic and multiple other uh, pieces, apparently, like just supposed to film 20, 20 other movies there or something like that. So uh, do you mind really quick just kind of talking about the, the, the material fact of that, that production? Yeah, so when he was, you know, again, as you're saying, he's, it's not a, the, the work is, again, it's kind of, it's mediated in the sense that it's Titanic's wake is about the movie Titanic. So he's already thinking about the multiple possibilities of the way in which someone could have told that story. And here's the way James Cameron told it as a love story. And, but he also then, as you say, kind of just gets down to this kind of basic fact that this, the film site was, um, built in Mexico because obviously lower wages, which is part of what he's talking about in terms of his understanding of globalization and neoliberalism and that the organization, you know, the setting up of that site basically devastated the, the, um, the muscle gathering livelihood, you know, as he puts it of the villagers who were working there because it actually, the tank lowered the, the salinity of the tidal pools and change the ways in which like literally the environment was working um and then that just happens and then you leave and you produce this movie and so for him he's you know those that kind of juxtaposition is what's so important for you know to to kind of think about and bring into the into these into these stories Mm -hmm. so literally living in the wake of that Right, right, that right. movie, not in the wake of the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, right, right, but the 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 Titanic, uh, you know, is sunk, and in 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 the yeah. Titanic, in this sense, sinks other things. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. It's uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so it is about that. I you know, it is also about the Titanic in mm-hmm. terms of the kind of you know what what it stood for as well mm-hmm. at that moment. But, you know, he again, it's always through these through so many different lenses. Yeah. Yeah. It's multi-referential all the time. I think you use the word multivalence. It's, uh, yeah. you know, that's that's what's beautiful, too. No, it's it's fascinating. I'm so, so, so happy to have stumbled across Alan Sekula and your work as well. And I want to thank you very much for your time. I know it was a long time and I appreciate you hanging in there with me. And yeah, it's, it's great. I love I mean, I, I always enjoy talking about his work i think it's very approachable and um you know as you say kind of you see it and it 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 kind of draws you in in that kind of way and then you want to kind of learn more and once you see that the works all start to begin to relate to each other you start to have this archive of Mm -hmm. of of information well stephanie schwartz thanks for joining me on interchange you're welcome thank you my heart is full to bursting except to say i'm the king of the world (laughs) 
that's our show. I'm compelled to close with Dan Burns, King of the World. Our thanks to Stephanie Schwartz for introducing us to the great Alan Sekula, an artist and thinker deeply in the American grain of Emerson and Melville, a mode perhaps best described by the poets William Carlos Williams and Susan Howe. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange, and on this show, you can blame me for editing, mixing, and music selection as well. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon, and our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on WFHB.